I hope everybody had a blessed time with their family. It's probably for some of us one of the few times we can spend time with our family, right? So we just uh, we're grateful to God for that. So I pray that everybody's time was uh, was blessed. Uh, we are going to be in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're going to cover verses 33 through 45. Almost approaching to the closure of this chapter where in the gospel of John, this is the seventh of Jesus' miracles and the last one. And we've talked about the fact of it being the last one is because it's going to point to him being glorified on the cross. But there's more in that when you look at it in depth. And so that's what we uh, desire to do this morning. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? When they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him. And let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Father, this morning we ask for your clarity, God, as we look into your word for understanding, for encouragement, for correction, God, for conviction. May you administer that accordingly, God. May the presentation of your word show up in the power and in the demonstration of your spirit, causing us to become more aware of who you are, God, not just in the world, but in our lives. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week we had Mary and Martha and we looked a little bit at their character, their, their attitude, if you will. 
as far as their reactions were concerned, right? We had a message called when God arrives and basically was, what is our reaction going to be when God does arrive in an answered prayer, but in so many other different situations? And we looked at their different reactions and, and something that uh, we could probably cover that we didn't cover uh, last week is that we look at the fact of Mary and Mark, the two different people, right? Uh, we see that Mary was always found where? At the feet of Jesus. Every time she's mentioned, she was at the feet of Jesus. Uh, at one point, she was uh, settled and established in the home, but you can probably rest assured she was praying, she was seeking after God. Martha was a little more just kind of here and there, a little bit everywhere. And we looked at that, that a lot of times in ministry, right, we can kind of get wrapped up with the fact of things that we're doing and, and we get worn out and, and we're tired of it. But as a matter of fact, Jesus said, Mary has chose, chosen the right thing and that's not going to be taken away from her. And we mentioned the fact that one of them was named and the other one was called. Remember that? Uh, Mary was named but Martha was called. And so you could also notate to that that when a person is in ministry, whatever your calling is, and, and, I'm, and I'm firm on this, I truly believe this. I don't care whether you are a preacher, a pastor, or you are an usher, or a children's ministry, whatever it is. If you clean the church, if you're truly called by God, uh, it's just about impossible to get burnt out. It's impossible because if God calls you, God's going to equip you. If you are the prayer warrior, you're not going to get worn out. Yes, sometimes you get tired. Yes, sometimes you need just a small break, but you're never really going to call it quits if that is your calling from God. But a lot of people sometimes that are named and not called, they jump into these instances. And those are the ones who get burnt out. Those are the ones who, who quit. Um, we all need a break from time to time. But it's important to understand this. As a matter of fact, both these women, if you look up their name, meant rebellion. Both of them, Mary and Martha. And that's interesting as well, because when you look at their reactions, you have two people whose name signifies rebellion, but they have two different reactions. And I think that that kind of shows us that as the Bible calls some sinners and calls other ones saints. Right. The people of God are saints. The people who are not of God are sinners. But yet us as saints, we still know that we are still a sinful people. Right. What makes us different? What makes us different is our reaction to situations as saints. Yes, we still sin, but our reactions are different. We approach things. We look at things with a different point of view than sinners do kind of the same way. Because remember, uh, Martha approached Jesus kind of a little hostile and she met him and said, well, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, she was talking about the eternal death. Martha said the same thing. If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. But she understood that the death was not eternal, that it was only partial. And so I think that that's a, a good point for us to understand, because when it comes to our reactions, it is very important. And I think that we'll close off with that at the end to maybe hopefully get some more depth and understanding 
in that right there. So Lazarus is dead. Jesus came. He said, where have you laid him? Show me. They take him to the spot. And so to understand a little bit about this, then uh, if some of you didn't know the death and burial process in those times, it was uh, it was a little different uh, than now. But of course, instantly when a person died, right, immediately, many people, when they take their last breath, their eyes stay open. So their eyes were immediately closed. They gave them what they called the kiss of love, right? They gave them a kiss of love just to demonstrate that. And they immediately washed their body from head to toe. They cleaned them up. And we see that in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph uh, wept over Jacob, his father, and he kissed him. To demonstrate his love for him. In Acts chapter 9, a woman named Tabitha, she died as a matter of fact. And Peter prayed over her and she was resurrected back to life. But Tabitha, it says that they, uh, she was washed and placed in an upper room. They cleansed her. They prepared her for burial. Then the body was taken and it was anointed with perfumes. Remember, we just celebrated Christmas and one of the gifts that was taken to Jesus was frankincense and myrrh. And a lot of these mixtures and a lot of these um, ointments were used for burial. Nard and myrrh and aloes. So one year we looked into those three gifts and we saw that one of them spoke of the kingship of Jesus. The other one spoke of his deity. And then one spoke of the fact prophetically that he was going to die and that's what he was to be anointed with. And that was the myrrh. So the body's then anointed with perfumes. And the, and the reason they did this is because it begins to smell. The body decomposes and so they do it so that the smell is not as bad. Then they thoroughly wrap them in shroud and, and pieces. Uh, they wrap the whole body around and then they cover the face with a special cloth. Remember, as a matter of fact, uh, there's a cloth today that they say uh, bears the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, you've seen it a lot. I think the Catholic Church kind of tends to to exalt it a lot. And so that's is a, a shroud, a, a covering that they would put over the face to cover them right there. Then the hands and feet were tied together to keep them in one place, because remember, they were going to move them from home all the way to the tomb. So they tied their hands and their feet. And this, all of this took place more than likely within the first day because they lived in a climate that was hot. So um, the body began to decay pretty quickly. So we got to hurry. We got to get on this and we have to bury this body. But what would come next was a little bit different than what you and I do, right? Uh, somebody passes away. What do we do? We call up the immediate family. Then we call up closer family then we call friends and we just notify hey our loved one has passed away but in this situation they would do that but then they would uh, hire what were called professional mourners to come in and accompany the family to the gravesite so you can imagine that you know it's somebody passes away how much will you charge me to come and just kind of cry a little and you know kind of make it look a little more interesting right it's kind of crazy if you think about it but they hired professional mourners to accompany them to the gravesite now when they were going to the gravesite i mean this was a, a i mean they were getting their money's worth 
I mean, they were wailing, they were yelling, they were crying, they would grab dirt, throw it in the air, they would throw it in their hair. And this was just to show that, wow, this person must have really been loved. And wow, it's just, you know, kind of awesome. But of course, we read it and say that was just kind of fake. That, that wasn't even real, you know. Uh, probably some of them may have been weeping for reals, but a lot of it was just show. A lot of it was just performance. And they would play sorrowful music from the home all the way to the gravesite. Now, we know that the gravesite was outside of the city. Couldn't be inside the city. It had to be outside. And we know that these graves were usually inside of a cave, and they would kind of carve it out, such as that right there. And they, they would have a, a, a small entrance. They would set them there, and they would cover it with the stone. A lot of them would, of course, you heard Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. That's kind of what he was referring to, because what they would do is wash the outside stone in whitewash just to let people know there's dead bones inside. Don't come near it. Why? Because the Jews, remember, they had to remain clean and pure. So if you touch it, now you're defiled. Now you have to be clean for seven days, cleansed. That was the reason why all of that was behind it. So Jesus' accusation was the same thing. You're whitewashed tombs. You're dead. You're just like those tombs right there. You're not spiritually alive inside is what he's basically telling them. They would lay them to rest. And for the next 30 days, the immediate family would mourn. I mean, it's believed that they wouldn't even answer a greeting as they were walking in the city. So if you said hi to them, they're just going to ignore you. That's how they mourn. As a matter of fact, when I was looking into it, a lot of it even reminds me of back when I was growing up as a child, how people would mourn when they lost someone. They would wear black for a certain amount of time. They wouldn't go here or go there because they were just uh, basically still in mourning. And what they would do after that is they'd come back a year later after the body was decomposed. They would get all the bones. They would put them in a box. They'd go into another room. They would label it. And there they would lay it with the rest of the other family who had died before them. And that was pretty much the process of what happened when somebody died. So uh, here we see that uh, Jesus, in verse 33, uh, saw, he saw Mary weeping. And he also saw the Jews who came with her weeping. So now we know what's going on. Mary's weeping for reals. A lot of these Jews are weeping because they paid me to do it. You know, they're, they're just leading me to do it. And so Jesus, uh, seeing them, uh, it says that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, you'll hear some commentators say that Jesus was groaned in the spirit and was troubled because of the fact that he was sad because Lazarus passed away. Now, obviously, he was sad because Lazarus passed away. But I'm not so convinced that that's why Jesus, Jesus was groaned uh, and troubled. Because when you look at this word in, in the Greek and you start to understand this groaning, the, the word literally means to snort with anger. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been so mad that you snort, but it's pretty angry inside. And it says that he groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. It means that he was disturbed. He was agitated. He was stirred up. So then you would have to ask, was then, then wait a minute, he was actually sounded like he was pretty upset. He was mad, right? That's what it sounds like. He groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. So then you'd say, well, then you mean Jesus actually got mad because somebody died? No, that's not what was happening here. 
I believe that Jesus was upset due to the unbelief and the hypocrisy that was put in front of him. There was a lot of unbelief. There was a lot of hypocrisy because of these people who were coming to mourn for something that really wasn't real. Because it says that the Jews um, were with her, going before her. Again, they weren't true. Remember the Jews, I've said that the Jews, we can equate them to today's Christians who are um, straddling the fence. One foot in, one foot out. That's, that's what you can equate the Jews to. That's how they would look like today. So they were actually mourning, but they didn't really understand what they were mourning for. They, they, it didn't matter to them. They just asked us to do this. In Acts chapter 19, verse 42, or actually Acts chapter 19, verse 32, Paul was in Ephesus. He was preaching to the people and he was preaching against the goddess Diana. Now, the goddess Diana was like that was their thing. And there was a man who made a lot of money making statues of the goddess Diana. Well, he started preaching and then people were starting to go away from it. So this man got upset and he riled up the people and said, this guy, we're making a good living. This guy is messing with it because he's going against the goddess Diana. So there was a great uproar in the city. I mean, people were going crazy. They were angry. Paul wanted to go in and talk to him to settle him down. They didn't even let him go in because they probably would have grabbed him. They probably would have stoned him to death, killed him. But in Acts 19, verse 32, um, Luke said that some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly was confused and the and the most of them did not know why they had come together. Why is this important? Because when you read it in the Greek context, the word assembly is the word ecclesia, the church. And when you sit and ponder on that, you can see today that it's almost the same thing that the church is coming together, believers with unbelievers, but they really don't understand what they're doing. The people who are unbelievers, they're just following. They're kind of doing the same thing that these mourners were doing. Uh, you've you've persuaded me to do it, but it's not coming from my heart. You, you've asked me to do it, but it's not something that really is coming from me. It's not my desire per se. So it says, some therefore cried one thing and some cried another. This is what the word of God says. No, this is what the word of God says. So the ecclesia was confused. There was a lot of confusion going on. And most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Just like a lot of people don't understand why the church gets together. People who come to church sometimes don't understand what we're doing by the exposition of Scripture. I, I, I don't understand. I'd rather hear something that's just a little more topical and it's going to speak to me rather than going to help me to understand what the Word of God is really telling me. We see it from the very beginning. Remember the Israelites when they were freed from Egypt? If you look in there and you're reading in the book of Exodus, it says that a mixed multitude came out for, with them. What that meant was there was Israelites and then there was people who weren't Israelites. They were the mixed multitude. And when you read Exodus and you read them in the wilderness, you'll notice that every single time there was problems. Every single time there was something happening, it was because of the influence of this mixed multitude. 
And you can rest assured that in our lives, that's why the Bible tells us to come out from among them and be separate. Because when we don't, you can rest assured that it's through the influence of those people that begin to bring chaos into our lives. We begin to question things. And now we're not satisfied with what God gives us. But now we start looking back to where we were in bondage like them when they said, well, we missed the onions and the leeks and the beets. And we had everything that we needed. But over here, we don't. Forgetting the fact that God was providing for every single thing that they needed. Not what they wanted, but what they needed. Remember, like I've said before, uh, the woman that says, well, uh, that, that boyfriend, that man that I had in my life, he was really good. Uh, yeah, he used to beat me up sometimes. He used to put me down, but at least I had a man. Rather than seeing that God should have you content being single or the man who says the same thing that the man, that woman was a knockout. Yeah, she cheated on me here and there, but I mean, it's all good. She was good. I'd rather than be alone, not seeing the fact that sometimes God puts us in those places so that he can demonstrate his glory. So Jesus turns around. And he tells them, where have you laid them? Now, if you notice there, he didn't ask him, where did you bury him? He said, where have you laid him? Where have you placed him? And then scripture tells us that Jesus wept. Now, this was authentic. This was sincere. This was the compassion of God. This was a hurting heart. This was Jesus Christ, the man that was demonstrating his uh, carnal nature before everyone else. Now, this was one of only three times that Jesus Christ in the scripture. Jesus cried when he looked over uh, the Israelites in Jerusalem. Remember, he said, oh, Jerusalem, how long I, I, I've wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers chicks, but you were not willing. He wept that time. He wept with Lazarus and he wept when he was in the garden right before they crucified him. He wept and said, my soul is vexed to the point of death. But he wept for Lazarus because he did love him. So this was sincere. And the Jews turn right around and they say, you see how much he loved him? And then some other one said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And verse 38 again says that Jesus groaning in himself once again. So again, he's snorting with anger. And you can just see because, of course, God knows all things. We may not know all things, but God knows. And he sees this, um, this show. He sees this hype. He sees the fake in all these people that are there, these Jews. And you'd almost think they're trying to just they're trying to add more. They're trying to put a cherry on top of it. You see how much he loved him, trying to make more of the fact that Lazarus was going to be missed because we got to make this good. We got to make people sad. We have to kind of uh, remember last week I talked about targeting the emotions to get them to weep, to get them to move. This is kind of what's happening here rather than them targeting some other area. And I think Jesus groaned again because he's just so upset and he's so tired of it. And so he tells them, take away the stone. Remove it. Then Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. It's been four days. Surely it's got a smell. 
And when you understand it's been four days and how Jesus, how long he took, then you can probably guess that Lazarus died whenever Jesus got the message that Lazarus was sick. He died immediately. So he said, take away the stone. And when she responded to him, rather than just listening, right? This is Martha. This is not Mary. This is not the one who sits at the feet of the Lord Jesus. This is not the one who gets excited and rises up and runs to him and just does as he says. This is Martha, the one who's always a busybody. This is Martha, the one who always has these questions. And rather than just saying, okay, do as he says, she says, God, surely there's been a, it's been four days. It's going to smell. But then Jesus says to her, did I not say to you, Martha, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Remember earlier, verses 25 and 26. Didn't I tell you this? Didn't I, didn't I make this clear to you? If you would only believe, you would see the glory of God. So then verse 41 says that they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you are that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, again, you have to notice uh, it says that they took the stone from the place where Lazarus was lying. No, it says where the dead man was lying. Because he made it clear this person is dead. Right? He used the euphemism earlier, Lazarus sleeps, but he meant he's dead. So the writer of this gospel, John, is making it clear Lazarus was dead. We're not even going to name him by Lazarus because he's just a dead man now. So they, they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And you have to ask yourself, wait, wait what do you mean? He hadn't even talked to the father yet. How can he th thank him for hearing him? And I would say that's because of the fact that God already hears the cries of our hearts before we even utter them with our mouths. I don't know if it's ever happened to you before, but there's something heavy on your heart and you don't even speak a word. But God will let you know some way, somehow. I see what you're going through. I hear you. It might be through a message. It might be through some uh, words that come from someone else that have no knowledge of what's happening. But it's the simple fact that God knows what you're going through. So Lazarus was there lying according to God's appointed purpose. That's important for us to know this morning. Why? Because sometimes we think that that something happened uh, because of this or it was that person's fault or it was my fault. But see, the things that happen in our life, they're according to God's appointed purpose. And that's where that's where Lazarus was lying at in his place of God's appointed purpose. This is important for us to realize this morning. And so he said, Father, thank you that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Wow. So he's praying, Father, this, this is not because of Martha. 
This is not a prayer for Mary, uh, who he did love and loved him. This isn't even for Lazarus himself. But Father, this I'm saying for those who are standing by. Well, who were those that were standing by? It was those Jews who really weren't believers. I mean, they believed what the word said, but they weren't truly people of God. They didn't have that regenerated spirit inside. Remember, uh, they did everything right. They crossed their T's, they dotted their I's, but they rejected the Messiah. That's those Christians that are standing by, the Christians that are uh, on the fence, straddling the fence, carnal Christians per se. That's those. I said it for them. Why? So that they would see and believe, so that they would come to the reality that I am the living God and I am alive and I do transform and I am supernatural and I am miraculous. So he cried out with a loud voice. Says verse 43. Now, this means that he just lifted his voice. I mean, it was loud. It wasn't uh, just something small. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, many commentators have said that he specifically addressed Lazarus because the power of God being so great, if he would have just said, come forth, all the dead bodies would have risen up. But he specifically said, Lazarus, come forth. Come, follow me. This is the same bid that he gave to that rich man who said, uh, good teacher, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus told him, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. This was the same bid. It means to come. It's a, it's a command, right? It's the same thing that he told the disciples, come, follow me. He told Peter, he told Nathaniel, he told them all, come, Follow me. When you and me believed in Christ, he said that. Maybe it wasn't audible, but he spoke to our hearts and he said, come, follow me. And we drop everything that we're doing. Or I hope that we did. And we follow him. And Lazarus got up. He was resurrected. Now, the question that I have this morning, because you hear many people who ask for a certain type of prayer and it doesn't happen. Maybe people who have been ill with COVID, the family member dies. Why didn't God come through? Well, you didn't have enough faith, right? Somebody had cancer and they died. Why did they die? Why did God allow them? Well, you didn't have enough faith. But can somebody answer me this morning? If Lazarus was dead, how did he have any ability to exercise any type of faith whatsoever? Because that is an indicator that any faith that we have is a measure that is given to us by God. Because all of the salvation, everything we believe in, it is also by Him. There's nothing in us that we should believe, but we have that willing heart and He causes that to come to life. Lazarus couldn't. Lazarus could not hear. Lazarus could not see. Lazarus could, had nothing. His heart was not beating. He couldn't practice anything. But yet, the Word of God was so powerful that it quickened his dead body and it rose him up to life. So, is the Word of God that quick and powerful that it raises us up in our time of need? Or is it not enough? Because I've talked to many people that it's not enough. They hear the Word of God, but it's, nothing's happening. 
Again, because salvation belongs to God, the miraculous belongs to God, and it takes a person to come to believe and trust in him. But Lazarus got up, and verse 44 says that he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. He was bound, hand and foot. His face was bound. It was the greatest miracle that Jesus actually performed. And this shows us exactly when he said that God would be glorified. What it meant, what this meant was this was going to send him to the cross. And he was basically pointing to the fact that I'm going to raise from the dead. What he had been saying from the beginning and God is glorified through it when Jesus died on that cross and he resurrected. God was not simply glorified when Jesus was born as a baby. God was not simply glorified when uh, Jesus died as a man. But God was ultimately glorified when Jesus Christ rose himself up from the dead. Now, behind all of that, there is a spiritual Symbolism, because this is not just simply about uh, a miracle. There is symbolism in all of the Bible. And as a believer comes to Christ and you start to get closer and you seek God more, you start to become a little bit mature, more mature and you start to realize the symbolism, the typology in Scripture. Everything points to something spiritual, though it was natural when it happened. And the truth of this symbolism here that we see with Lazarus is that Lazarus was me and Lazarus was you. And Lazarus is every single person who was born and takes a breath of life. We as well, like Lazarus, were dead. We were dead in our trespasses. Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Oh no, we weren't uh, physically dead, but we were spiritually dead. And I would tell you right now, the one that's better off is the physically dead man than the spiritually dead one. The spiritually dead one is the one who is more miserable. He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. So he makes us alive. How? He comes to our tomb. He comes to our cave, to our place of darkness that holds us captive. Right? Because that's what a tomb does. It holds you captive. That's where it, it keeps you right there. He comes to that place of darkness. Our mind becomes a tomb where darkness resides in the moisture and mold of corruption, bitterness, unforgiveness, ugliness begin to consume us. That's about sums it up, right? But it's then sealed with the stone of a hard heart. Right? The same way that this dead person, they seal it with a stone. Ours is sealed with the stone of a hard heart. But God then commands the stone to be removed after he raises us. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. The Lord saying, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart 
of flesh. I'll take out that hardness. I'll take out that bitterness. I'll take out that corrupted man who thinks wrong and, and, and everything is wrong about you. And I will put within you a new heart of flesh. Now you have compassion. Now you have these things that you need. And he says after that, then I will cause you to observe my statute and walk in my ways. That's through the new spirit. Then when God uh, gives us life, he commands the stone to be removed. He prays that those standing by would see the glory of God and believe. Oh, our family, our friends, our co-workers, that they would see, wow, this person has literally been changed. They were dead, not physically, but God has transformed them. He then commands our feet to be loosed, that we would now have direction that we may follow him. Psalm chapter 37, verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Now when the Lord's doing it, now we can move our feet because they're no longer bound and we can follow them as He orders them. Our hands are to be loosed that we may have power and authority in Him. How does that work? Matthew 5, chapter, 30, ch chapter 5, verse 30. It says, If your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off. Right? What does that mean? If there's something that's causing you to stumble, if there's something that's keeping you, remove it out of your life. But it takes power and authority to do that. And only the person who knows who they are in Christ are able to do it. And he removes the veil that is wrapped over our face because the King James says that the face was bound with this cloth, but he removes the veil that's wrapped over our face and he gives us vision. Now we can see. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. This is, that's what God does for us. We are Lazarus. And Lazarus means who God helps. Right? Those of us who have been changed, those of us who have been uh, regenerated by Christ, that's exactly what happened to us. The same instance with Lazarus. It might have happened five years ago. It might have happened 20 years ago. It might have just happened last week. But it's the same instance. The Lord raised us up from death and he said, you put your name in the blank. Come forth. Follow me. Now, Jesus could have simply sent the word to heal Lazarus. Right? Isn't that what he did in the earlier chapters with the nobleman's son that was he was ill? He said he's to the point of death. He said, go your way. Your son's going to be well. With the centurion's son servant, go, I'll send a word. The centurion servant actually told him, you don't have to come, God, just send a word and my servant shall be healed. Now, God could have sent the word to heal Lazarus, right? But he did it. When it came to somebody dying, when you see the instances of resurrection in the Bible, Jesus was always up close and present. He was never did it from afar off. He was always up close and and present. And because this resurrection symbolizes somebody's salvation, somebody coming to God, somebody getting it, somebody understanding it, every resurrected life, God does it not from afar, but He does it up close and personal. He's right there with you, He's right there in front of you. He's not going to do it from a distance and just send a word, but He's going to come and make sure that we know that He is there. In hearing Chuck Missler, he actually said that when you read the Gospels, 
nobody died in the presence of Jesus. And you think about it and you're like, yeah, not a single person died in the presence of Jesus because he wouldn't allow that. And I would go as far to say that no true believer will spiritually die in the place where Jesus is close. He said, my sheep, no one will pluck them out of my hand. If you are abiding in Christ, if you are close with Christ, if you are near to Christ, you will never perish. Not spiritually, not any way. But it's when we go afar off that we begin to perish. We begin to get thirsty. We begin to dwindle down. We begin to everything else. That is a good reminder for us to know. That's the importance of staying close to Jesus Christ. That's the importance of abiding in Christ. Because we know that He is our life source. What Jesus wanted them to understand is that He is the resurrection and the life. To believe in Jesus Christ through this resurrection. John 11 Verses 25 and 26. He told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the ultimate goal of a believer. And at one point or another, I, might, I know that it might seem like a bummer. Because we get wrapped up in our own little mind, in our own little world, and, and we kind of want Jesus to fix this, and to fix that, and to fix that over there, and to fix this right here, and to make everything better. But the fact of it all today is that though God can do that, and, and some of the times He will, but He's not always going to do that. What He wants us to believe and trust in Him as I said last week, can you get all of your life choices and your careers and your goals and your desires for your children and for your family, every single thing, can you grab it all? Can you put it aside and say, okay, I don't want to have nothing to do with that. And can, then can you stand and say, my hope alone is in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's it. God, if you don't ever do nothing else for me again, that's okay. Because you've already done by saving my life. Can we really do that, right? Do you believe this? Because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's me. You want life? It's me. You want resurrection? It comes through me. First, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. But, but the key is we have to believe in him. And when we come to this natural death, we shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Never Oh, we may experience that, that natural death where, where we weep, right? Where family members go and they weep and we don't have to hire uh, people to mourn for us. But the true believers know he's not dead. He's standing before the presence of Christ. That's just a shell right there. And then all of a sudden now it brings a, a sort of a joy and it doesn't seem right like I'm joyful, but there is my beloved and they're dead. But it's okay because we know where they're at or we would hope that we know. That's why it's important to us to explain the perfect oracles of God. See, we can't make excuses for our loved ones anymore because I hear it a lot. 
I hear a lot of people that say, oh, they, they, they know the Lord. They've known the Lord since they were little, or they've known the Lord for so long. And I always think in my head, if they knew the Lord, why do they continue to live their life the way that they do? Because the fact is, is when we know God, our life is going to line up with his life. Not perfectly, but we're going to strive after that. That's our end result is the resurrection and the life. Believing in Jesus, believing that he's going to raise us up again. So see what that does is now when we pray because someone is ill or because uh, our marriage is, is not right or because uh, our kids are not right or because situations at work aren't right. When those things don't come to manifestation, when they don't happen the way that we want it to, it doesn't matter. Why? Because I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Amen. That's all that matters. And so now that's where the heart doesn't become heavy. It's not weary no more. Your bones don't wax old. It doesn't melt. It just begins to stay solid on the foundation of Jesus Christ, knowing that he knows what's better for us. So I'm just going to trust him. Why? Because my, my hands, my feet have been loosed. All I got to do is follow his guide. That's all I have to do. He's given me a vision. What is that vision? That vision is salvation. Remember I said that the Bible says that those Abraham and all those old fathers, they died having seen the promise from afar off. They never received the promise, but they died believing it. And that's the charge for every single one of us. We want to die, take our last breath, believing that he is the resurrection and the life. That when we take our last breath, that we can smile and we can uh, be found with a smile on our face, knowing I know where he's at. I know where she's at. They're standing before the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. If that's not our ultimate heart this morning, if that's not our ultimate goal, if it's not our desire, then we're probably not in Christ. I'm not saying that you are or not. That's not up to me to know. But when we look at scripture, it shows that is our ultimate hope. But see, we're living in a day and age where there's so many distractions, so many distractions. And you can look back. I've always talked about the pilgrims, the Puritans. When you read their prayers, when you read their trust, it's because all they had was God. But see, we want to come to that point where all we have is God. I'm going to fail you. You're going to fail me. Your husband's going to fail you. Your wife's going to fail you. Your sons and daughters are going to fail you. But this word will never fail you. Our God will never fail us. He will always be right there in that time of need. So our end result is, God, I'm trusting in you for eternal salvation. I recognize, I do believe it, God. You are the resurrection and you are the life. So he said, loose them and let them go. That's what God says to the gates of hell, to Satan himself. Whenever we are saved, is loose him, let him go, let her go. They belong to me. And in verse 45, it says that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, they also believed. Oh, yeah, probably some of these mourners that were paid. Some of them might have even said, you know what, here's your money back. I don't need it no more i got something better because I believe now in the living God, right? But if you notice, it doesn't say that they came to Mary and Martha. They came to Mary. That is important. Why? 
Because remember, Martha's got this kind of double mind uh, mindset that she's here and she's there. But Mary was what? Always at the feet of Jesus. That means, of course, she was a disciple. But what it meant was, is, is, it's an acknowledgement that God, I'm beneath you. You are above me and I am submitting to you. That's what Mary was doing. And it says that those who came to Mary, they didn't come with Mary. They came to Mary. They believed. And it shows us that our character is extremely important as believers. The character that we have in Christ, our reaction to things in life as Christians, they're extremely important. How? Well, we don't want to be blowing a head gasket every single time somebody rubs us the wrong way. We want to keep that character knowing that the world is looking. We want to make sure that our attitude and our demeanor are good and pleasant before the sight of God. And if we can do that, when people come to us, yes, that's going to be our beloved family. That's going to be our co-workers. That's going to be our friends. When they see that all of this lines up with Scripture, yes, that person's been resurrected from the dead. That person's been loosed. The, the, the stone has been taken away. That's what they can believe, and that's something that they can believe in. But when, when we uh, live a life of double standard and hypocrisy, nah, I'll keep what I have over here. That's the mentality of the world. That's why it's extremely important as God does the work, right? He, he's the one who resurrects, but it's up to us after he resurrects us to be submissive to him, to have that good character and that good demeanor that others may come and believe. And I know today that we have some very dear loved ones that we want to come to Christ. Well, chances are they're never going to. If we're more focused on them and our life doesn't line up, so the best thing we can do is, God, I'm going to focus on you, line my love, my, my life in position to you that they may come and believe. The rest, I'm going to trust you. If they don't, I'll be standing before you, God. My hope is not in them. My hope is in you. I know it's a harsh thing to say, but it's not. Husbands, our hope is not in our wives. Wives, our hope is not in our husbands. Our hope is in the only one who can give us eternal life. And the one in Christ agrees and says amen. amen. God, as we look at this instance with Lazarus, is raised from the dead. God, it's our hope that we can all clearly see now that that's exactly what you do in our lives. You come as we're spiritually dead, God. You come and you call out to us, God. You remove the stone and you say, come, son, come, daughter, come forth. You unbind us, Lord, hand and foot, you give us vision, and that vision is a vision of the cross. And Lord, for that, we're grateful. And Lord, for those who stand by, for those who aren't sure, for those who are skeptical, God, we pray that through the demonstration of our lives, that we've been resurrected, that they would see and they would be desirous to believe in you, God. Because there's nothing that we can do to make people believe. But there's definitely things we can do to make people not believe, God. Belief belongs to you. But many times, God, we can get in the way with our attitudes, the way we live our life. God, 
We recognize that we're still sinners. But according to your word, you see us as saints now because you've changed us. Lord, may you bring those who are sinners also to that sainthood status, God, by being clothed in your righteousness. We pray for all of those loved ones, God. We don't want to have to pay people or persuade them to put on shows and make demonstrations. We don't want to be a part of the ecclesia that gathers that are confused and don't even understand why they're getting together. But we want to know that when we get together, it's to glorify you, God. It's to pay honor and tribute to you and that it would not stop there. So, Lord, we ask you to be magnified in our lives, God, in everything, Lord. God, if it means bringing us to our knees in tears, that maybe we would, we would even have to call into work because we're just so undone. So be it, God. If it draws us closer to you, so be it. We just know one thing, Lord. So we desire you and you alone. Make that more real in our lives this morning so that you and you alone would be glorified, God. 